As the children are making their way out, I will remind you that we are between two important Christian holidays. We're sitting between Easter and Pentecost, which comes seven weeks after Easter. In this between time, it's often known as the season of Easter, but you wouldn't necessarily be expected to know that. But what generally happens in this time is that we will read passages from Scripture that kind of bounce around. And, and the thinking this time around was that maybe we would make a different journey through Scripture. That we would make our journey to Pentecost this time in which the Spirit is released to the church. That we'd make this journey by looking at a number of different I don't want to say minor, but maybe lesser known characters of the New Testament. Any of us, no matter our biblical knowledge, might be able to, if given a quiz, we might be able to list some major players in the New Testament. In fact, if we were to go out into the street to people who aren't even the church, they probably would say Jesus. They might even be able to say Mary or or. Paul or even Peter, we could probably fill in those names as well. But there are other names, other people, even unnamed in the New Testament who have quite an impact on the church. And they're people like us. So often through Sunday school and other events, Peter and Paul and some of these other well-known characters of John and so forth, we start to lift them up on a pedestal and, and that we're amazed at their actions, but we find as we do that, we find ourselves less and less able to relate. And so for our journey to Pentecost, we're going to look at individuals with whom we might have more in common. Those who might actually live more like we do. If you think about it, we've already been on this journey. Two weeks ago, we talked about Thomas, that disciple who followed Jesus for three years, and yet when he was told of the resurrection, didn't believe and said he wouldn't believe unless he could put his fingers in the marks or his hands in the side. Or even last week, the two who were leaving Jerusalem, going to the, the village of Emmaus, they were living, leaving in discouragement and frustration that their Lord or their, the person they had followed had been crucified on the cross. And we found how their life changed as Jesus came to them. How they couldn't help but go back, even though it was late, and share with any who would listen that Jesus is alive that he's risen from the dead. So this morning, we continue our journey. This morning, we find ourselves journeying with a name that we actually do know, but we probably don't know much about him. If I were to talk with you and share with you this name, you would say, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that name. You may have heard it in Sunday school or along the way because this name is also often associated with Paul. See, we're told in the first missionary trip that Paul took that Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary trip. And we've, we've heard that name before, Paul and Barnabas. 
We might not recall it. If you gave us a quiz, as I mentioned earlier, and said, who was on the first missionary trip? Paul and we might look at that blank and say, oh, I know that. I, I heard that. But we have heard the name. And it turns out that Barnabas is much more than a sidekick to Paul. Barnabas is much more than a Robin to a Batman. Barnabas has much more to teach us about ourselves and how we can impact the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the different places in which Barnabas comes in and out of the story in the Acts of the Apostles. It's, in essence, a way, you might think of it as our, our making a Paul Harvey trip. The, now you know the rest of the story. It will require a little bit of detective work by us. For those of you who like to read such novels or, or like mysteries, it's going to take a little bit of our energy to piece together some of the puzzle pieces but with each piece that we place, we are going to find ourselves more and more familiar as well as aware of who we also could be in the kingdom as we get used to this Barnabas of Paul and Barnabas. Our first reading comes early on when the church is just Forming. I want you to remember that the first followers of Jesus Christ, all of them were Jews. Every single one of the early Christians were Jews. They were Jews who believed that the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, had finally come. And they saw that anointed Messiah, the Christ, as Jesus the very one we profess as Christ and Messiah today. But to make that call, to say the Messiah has come, was to immediately separate oneself from other Jews, from potentially other family members and friends. To say the Messiah had come was to suddenly find yourself differentiated and even maybe ostracized from people you love and work with and are dear to your life. Just for now, for a moment, think about the drastic change that would come if you're a U of M fan and suddenly woke up tomorrow and said, you're all about Michigan State. Or if you need to go the other way around, do so. Or if it's because it's a reformed crowd, if it needs to be Hope or Calvin. You start to get an inkling, but not anywhere close to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to say he's the Messiah, meant for the family systems to start to divide. The resources that one had, the promises of inheritance, all that stuff was suddenly thrown into question. The shop front that you had, maybe now people wouldn't come and get your goods because you were now off and out part of a different group. And so what did these early followers of Jesus need to do? They needed to find support in one another. They needed to find financial relief among one another. And it is into this group that we find our Barnabas for the first time. 
Listen now for the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, may you guide us through your word today. May this not only be a time of interest and instruction, but also a time of growth for us. May your spirit move among us and challenge us and help us to be who you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I remind you that we approach this almost like detectives having to pull out from larger stories. We're reading in Acts 4, beginning at the 32nd verse. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is our first reading. And as I said, it takes some detective work. What's going on? What can we learn here? Well, the first thing is I want you to hear that Barnabas' real name isn't Barnabas. It's Joseph. So really, it's Paul and Joseph go on these missionary trips. It's Joseph. The difficulty is, Joseph is such a common name in that time. I know we know Mary and Joseph, but I'm telling you, Joseph is like the most common name. There are Josephs everywhere. There's a jo- that whole thing continued all the way up through England. Right? Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Joseph, Joe. Joseph's everywhere. And so it's not surprising that he's given a nickname. But note who he's given the nickname by. The name Barnabas is given to him by the apostles themselves. The apostles themselves see in him something to give him a nickname. There's something enough important in him that they decide to label him, just like Thomas was nicknamed the twin, probably because he was a twin. This case, Barnabas is given a nickname, or not, Joseph's given a nickname, Barnabas. Now I'm doing it. And Luke, the writer of Acts, goes on to share with us that that means son of encouragement. In other words, Barnabas was an encourager. But not just an encourager. When we think about an encourager, we have a whole spectrum of encouragement that goes through our mind. There's the people that are always saying nice, kind words to us. Oh, it'll be okay. And then there are those who really press us those who have our back, but they also push us. They challenge us to be who we can be. They know the strengths and the skills and the abilities within us, and they push us. 
The translation, son of encouragement, is a weaker translation than what it really means. It says he's an exhorter. In other words, he speaks in such a way that he challenges, that he pushes, that he, he strengthens people for resolve to be who they are to be. This is who Barnabas is. This is who the apostles have identified. But there's more in this first passage. Notice that all the believers are coming together and they're sharing their things in common. This story comes just before another story called Ananias and Sapphira, in which they too brought their stuff forward, but they kept some of it back. They wanted to have all the image of being part of the group and doing everything. They didn't have to give it all, but they presented it as if they did, but they didn't. They're a poor example, and the example of their poor giving is put up against Barnabas's giving. Others had sold land and property, but why is Barnabas lifted up to us? There's a note in there that we don't catch, but probably is a signal of a reason why he's lifted up. You know, he's from Cyprus. Cyprus was an area that was fairly wealthy. That's not to say everyone there was wealthy, but it was an area where you could expect that more people than not that you ran into had wealth. We have the same thing nowadays. We talk about different parts of the United States that are more wealthy than others. If I say, oh, that person's from Beverly Hills, you don't think they're pushing a cart around, do you? If I say they live on the lake here on Lake Michigan, already you start to have certain images. If I say they're from Bloomfield, certain images come to mind. Luke intends the same reality when he says Barnabas is from Cyprus. When he comes and sells land, what we're being told is probably that this was a significant gift. That he was emptying himself. We're told that he's also a Levite. That is, he's of the 12 tribes, the tribe that God set aside for himself. The tribe that was given aside to, to make sure that God was worshipped and praised. If there was anybody that was going to be hard to convince that the Messiah had come, it may very well be the religious order that's always been in power. But Barnabas is sold that Jesus is the Christ. This is the beginning of the undergirding. This is our first exposure to Barnabas. It doesn't tell us a lot. It tells us he may have had some wealth, but it tells us more than anything that he truly impressed the apostles, not because he gave a large amount, but because there's something in his spirit that though he's common like all of us with a name like Joseph, he's common like everyone else, that he is certainly willing to push and to challenge and to strengthen others. Which leads us to our second reading. Barnabas is willing to get involved in the tough places. There are those of us who are humble and don't speak up, but we go to the fire. We go to the trauma. When others know to stand back, these are the ones who rush in, and they don't need any praise. They simply go in because it's, they know what's, what's needed. Our next story in which we encounter Barnabas 
is the story of the conversion of Saul, who becomes Paul. You may remember, as I said earlier, that there was a division that was growing among the Jews, those who believed the Messiah had come and those who did not. Saul stood with the party that believed the Messiah did not come. He did not believe in the Messiah. And he was a young Pharisee of Pharisees, and he had a strong zeal for making sure that any foreign sect was gotten rid of. Saul was there when Stephen was persecuted and stoned to death. Saul looked on with approval. And after that event, the stoning of Stephen, the early followers of Christ, they split. They went as far away as they could. Only a few stayed in Jerusalem. People gathered up whatever belongings they had and they ran for the hills. Some of them traveling hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Those who did not believe the Messiah had come had the upper hand. And they didn't stop there. They went forward searching out door to door, trying to find anybody who believed that Jesus was the Christ to stomp out this newfound faith. Paul gets a letter from the high priest and he travels to Damascus, a city quite a ways, to see if he can find some of the ones who fled there in Damascus. And he's got a letter giving him authority to take them and bring them back. And not good things are going to happen. But we know, because we often read it in worship on Sunday, once a year at least, that on the road, on the way, Saul encounters our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord speaks to him out of the heavens and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul goes blind, cannot see. He has to be led by the hand into Damascus, the very city he's gone to take care of and get rid of others. He now is in darkness. Another fellow that's not known by many named Ananias comes and, and breathes and speaks the word of the Lord to him and Saul's eyes are opened and he is baptized and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and we know him as Paul. It is a powerful moment. We praise that moment, the conversion story of Saul. We talk about it. We talk about and hope about it for our friends and neighbors, people who are traveling far away from God, that God would get a hold of their life and bring them back into the fold. We revel in that story, in that reality. But the rest of that story is painful and difficult. You see, because Paul now believes that Jesus is the Christ, but that doesn't believe others believe that Paul believes that Jesus is the Christ. You got to remember that everybody led, left, and fled. They took their families, any belongings they had, and they went hundreds of miles away. And now the very guy who is at the center of the persecution, the very guy who's knocking on doors and trying to find Christians, this very guy is saying now that he follows Christ? I tell you what, would you believe him? What are the chances? Would you step forward and say, okay, I trust you? Paul suddenly was on an island. 
Those who believed in Christ didn't trust him. And those who thought that Jesus was not the Messiah, the very ones who sent Paul, wanted nothing to do with him. He was alone. He tried to go to Jerusalem. He tried to go back to Jerusalem, go back home. He tried to find the apostles who were still there in Jerusalem to meet with them. Would you let him meet the apostles? The center of the movement? Our next reading from Acts chapter 9, verse 26. This is in reference to Paul. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Notice verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, that is Paul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is against, I'll explain that in a moment. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Notice, Barnabas shows up for just a glimpse, just a quick moment The type of thing when you're watching a movie and you turn away for a moment and you meet a critical part of the scene, but the rest of the story moves on and it all still makes sense, but yet there's this critical moment. Paul, this one that goes on to write so many letters in which our New Testament is. Paul couldn't get in, but the one who gets him in, the one of encouragement, the exhorter, is the one who takes him in believes him, and then takes him to the apostles. Barnabas is the one who makes the connections. How many of us knew that before this morning? How many of us knew that? And yet in this moment, everyone here can see the critical juncture that was, that Barnabas helped make the connection. The truth is, every one of us who follow Jesus Christ has the power and the ability through the Spirit to make connections that need to happen, to take the risk with people, to trust when the Spirit is at work in someone, to see that and trust the Spirit at work, even though everything else says, oh, I'm not sure about to trust that God is at work. We have that ability to make connections that allows God to grow and build his church. Now, that doesn't mean everything was easy then. Please hear what happened. It says the Hellenists were looking for a way to kill Paul. What the reference there is, that references the Jews 
There were Jews that were part of Judea and Israel, and then there were Jews who lived out in the greater Greco world. Many of them had come to settle in Jerusalem, but they still attended a synagogue. It's like us, if we go to another country, we might go to a, an English-speaking church. Those Jews, the Hellenized Jews, those whom Paul was probably originally part of, his very own people, were looking to kill him. Eventually, they had to get him out of town. He was too hot a commodity. And they shipped him back off to Tarsus, which is where Paul is from, north of the, Medi- the northern part of the Mediterranean, pretty far away. But he's no longer persecuting the church, and the church has peace, it says. That's what we know of Barnabas so far. He's an encourager. He's an exhorter. He connects the connections that need to be made. But the story continues. And there's got to be a way that Paul becomes part of the story again. Remember, he's been shipped off. See, another thing is happening in the church that's unexpected. Remember, all the early Christians were Jews. Every one of them was a Jew who believed the Messiah had come. But the Holy Spirit is at work in doing something that people are not expecting that are following Jesus. The Holy Spirit is starting to work with people that are not Jews. He's starting to work, the Spirit is starting to work with people outside the fold, what is often referred to as Gentiles, or in other words, everyone else. The Spirit starts breaking in to other realities that are not Jews. We know it as the the centurion, Cornelius, and how at his house, the Spirit speaks to him, and they have Peter come, and the next thing you know, they are all baptized. Peter himself was unsure whether he should baptize them, but he had this vision to do so. And then he had to go report back in Jerusalem and explain himself, Peter did. But that's not the only breaking in of the outsiders. You see, among those who fled and left, some went all the way up to Antioch, a place 300 miles away from Jerusalem. And in their going up there, many of them settled there, and they too begin to share with people who are not Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And people start to believe that. Word gets back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has to check it out. Listen for our third reading. It begins at Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them Men of Cyprus, remember where Barnabas is from? Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas 
to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I'm going to stop there. We can go to this point alone. Notice what happens. There's a whole host of new believers who don't have a Jewish background, but they've come to believe in the Christ. The church in Jerusalem, which is the center, has to check it out. So they send an emissary. They send Barnabas. Probably because they recognize that people up there were from Cyprus. Maybe Barnabas will know some of them, etc. But they send Barnabas. This encourager, this exhorter is sent up to Antioch. I wonder what must have been on his mind in the journey What am I supposed to do about it? But when he got there, he could tell the Spirit was alive in these people, that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Barnabas praised God. He could see that the grace of God had been poured out beyond just the Jewish faith. It had been poured out on others, and he simply praised God. But he also saw there was a problem immediately. Here are a whole bunch of people that now believe Jesus is Lord, but they have no underpinning. They know nothing about what they truly believe. They have no background, no learning, no development. They're like a seed that could fall on a rock and grow up for a moment, but the next moment be gone. Barnabas sees the vulnerability of this early church. And so he does two things. The first thing he does out of his own strength, remember he's an encourager, exhorter. He does everything he can to to encourage them. Hold on firm to what you believe right now. Don't let go of that. How many times have we done that with someone? Hold on, don't let go. I know it's hard, just hold on right now. Hold on. Barnabas brings every strength that he has within him to tell them to just hold on. And then it would seem like he abandons them. But he's doing the second thing he knows to do. Jerusalem is 300 miles back. He could go back there and get help. Tarsus is 100 miles away. And he knows that's where they sent Saul. Saul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, who knows the Jewish faith inside and out, who's got it memorized all the way through who was passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ now and yet has been sent into exile, he goes and gets Saul to bring Saul back to teach these new believers. They need a person like Saul. And I put to you, Saul needed people to teach. 
you may not have caught it, but that, that arrangement goes on for a whole year. It's a whole year of learning and growing in the faith of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The undergirdings are put there, and we're told that this is the place where we get our name the very first time. Christians. This is the work of Barnabas and Paul, and in chapter 13, we see a few other names as well. Kind of an academy begins of learning and growing. And it's out of Antioch, this place where people are first called Christians, where the church of Jesus Christ first sends missionaries out. This is where Paul and Barnabas are first launched out of. This is the place that launches them. Once they learn enough about their faith and who they are in Jesus Christ, they're growing as infants in the faith. And once they start to mature, they realize this cannot be kept to ourselves. The rest of the world needs to know. And they pray and they fast and the Holy Spirit says, set aside Paul and Barnabas for me. And from that is where we get our, all our stories of our missionary trips. I've got one last thing for you. We can be encouragers. We can be exhorters. We can be the Josephs, the common people behind the scenes, making a tremendous difference for the kingdom of God. We can be Barnabas. It may come to mind, wait a minute, I didn't think it was Paul and Barnabas. I thought it was Paul and Silas. There's one other part in which Barnabas is listed here. After the first missionary journey, which was such a success, Paul and Barnabas get together and they talk about going on another missionary journey. The problem is they have a conflict. The conflict goes back to the first journey. They had taken with them on the first journey a man named John Mark, a young guy. We're not sure what his job was for them, but we do know through Scripture that he bailed on them, that early on in that missionary trip, he left. So now when they plot this second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas together are talking about going back and seeing all the people they saw before, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul says, no way. He abandoned the trip last time. What are you talking about? No way. Barnabas wants to take him. We learn later in the letter to the Colossians that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. So maybe it was blood. Maybe Barnabas wasn't ready to give up on family. Or maybe Barnabas is the type of person who can see in someone around all the rough edges, can still see the gifts within them, the possibility. Are you someone who can see the possibility in others? There are those of us who only can see the negatives in people. Once they've done something wrong, we start to write them off. There are others in us who can see the diamond that's within. Barnabas is an encourager. He's an exhorter. He can see the diamond within. Barnabas and Paul's disagreement becomes so big that they separate. Paul takes on Silas, Barnabas takes on John Mark, and they go on separate journeys. It's a rift in the church. Fortunately, we know that that rift was later healed. 
In one of Paul's own letters, he references it. Why do I share this with you? Because seeing the diamond in the rough, seeing the possibilities in someone where there's all sorts of negatives, is who we're called to be. Jesus saw the sinner and loved the sinner and gave his life up on the cross for us who are broken. Barnabas did the same. That rift was healed. John Mark was now part of the fold again. And tradition holds that that John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. Barnabas believed in him. Matthew and Luke write their Gospels borrowing from Mark. None of us should ever sit here and think we are nobody or have no gifts or no possibility of giving to the kingdom. That we're not big enough, great enough, faithful enough. Every one of us have been given gifts by the Spirit and we are called to use them. Barnabas had the gift of encouragement, exhorting, pushing, even when things didn't look right or when the risk may seem too high. He continued to push. Maybe that's your gift. And if it is, the kingdom of God needs it. Let's pray. Almighty God, may you exhort us to be who you're calling us to be. It's so easy, O oh Lord, for us to see all our own negatives, to lift up all the reasons why we can't. But you, O oh Lord, know who you've called each one of us to be. Help us. Help us not only to be encouraged in you, but also to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to strengthen one another, and to see what you can do, for you can change anyone. Pray all this, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Share one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours this day and forevermore. Amen.